When you think of important character traits, what comes to mind? Oftentimes, what's not really on top of the list, but really ought to be, is teachability. I mean, you think about it, if you're hiring somebody new for your company, you want someone who's teachable. You want someone who can learn the ropes of how the company works and operates and their job and what they're supposed to do. You don't want somebody who comes in thinking they know it all and they're going to teach you what you ought to be doing. Now you want somebody teachable. Same thing in our family, right? We want kids who are teachable. We want our children to be teachable. When they just yell no and persist in doing whatever it is that they were doing, well, that didn't go over too well. You got to teach them that you can't respond that way, that you have to humble yourself and be teachable. It's interesting, isn't it, that when Jesus picked his disciples, that he didn't go and pick the most religious, those established in a certain system. No, he, he picked guys who often were just teachable. They didn't know all the things, but they were teachable. They were willing to come follow him. It's also interesting how many times that Jesus said to different groups of people, how slow are you to learn? Are you still so dull, you stiff-necked people? Why? Because teachability is so important. And so as we go through the minor prophets, we see just how unteachable people often are. I mean, it's one of the tragedies of reading through these books is so oftentimes, here's the warning, here's the call to repentance, and what happens? The people persist in their sin, and so then they face the consequences of that. God, in his justice, righteously judges these people. But if you could be any prophet, any prophet in the Old Testament, one of the ones who ought to top your list is Haggai. Why? Because the people listened. They responded. They were teachable. We see that throughout Haggai's messages. Last week, Ethan did a great job kind of walking us through the first message that Haggai preached. He preached four in total. But this first message that Haggai preached was essentially, hey, you're back in your town after years of, of exile, finally escaping Babylonian captivity, and you've come back to Jerusalem simply to build your own homes, to make them nice and fancy, but not to build the temple of God. And the temple of God is so important because it tells everybody this is where the presence of God is. It brings the presence of God to the people. But they didn't do it. And so Haggai comes and he challenges them and he calls them out. And he says, you've got to focus on building the temple. And so they do. They respond. They're teachable. They get to work building the temple. Now, in our day, it's not so much that the temple must go up because now we are the temple of God. Now, in our day, it is that the temple must go out. The temple must go out. And then from that message, Haggai, he'll preach three more messages. I want to jump into it with you. The second message that Haggai preached this morning, we'll go through the final three, but the second message is found in Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. The prophet writes, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. 
for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. Now, it's interesting. The people had been faithful. They've been at work. They've been building. One of the great things about Haggai is he dates his messages very precisely. So we know that exactly two months later, Haggai comes back and he preaches this second message. He, pe he preaches it to a people who've been faithful, who've been teachable, who've responded. And so you would expect that the people, they're high-fiving each other. They're getting all excited because they're doing the work they've been called to do. The temple is going up. You would expect this to be a time of excitement. On top of all this, based on Haggai's dating, we know that they are celebrating the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was that time when uh, they celebrated. They went out from their houses and they lived in tents just to remind themselves of God's protection as they were led out of Egypt and they were wandering wandering around in the wilderness, yet God was there. He was present. He was tenting among his people. And so it was a reminder of that. And so you would expect this to be just an exciting time, a great time. And yet when Haggai arrives and, and he preaches this second message, well, it's not an exciting time. And it's actually somewhat depressing because there's people who are still alive who remember what the old temple looked like. They remember Solomon's temple. And Solomon's temple, it was exquisite. It was grand. It was a sight to be seen. Solomon, he didn't just have Israelites build the temple. No, he went and he found the finest artisans in all of the world. And he hired them to come in and to construct this incredible temple. And so when you see that temple, oh, anyone who could remember it, they knew how majestic it was. They knew how awesome it was and how grand it was. And now they're seeing this one go up and it just can't compare. I mean, it just looks nothing compared to Solomon's temple. And so a time that should be so exciting, that should be just giving you energy. Well, it's a little bit defeating because you're looking at all the hard work that you're putting in and you're saying to yourself, man, it just can't compare. And the old timers, they're telling all the young guys, you know, I mean, you guys are trying, but it's just, this, this doesn't even compare to the Solomon's temple. Oh, you should have seen Solomon's temple. That was really something. I mean, this is nice what you're doing, but I mean, it just doesn't compare. And so Haggai speaks this message to a group that is deflated. And they're deflated because, well, it's just easy to get caught up in the trappings of the temple and to think that that's where the glory is and that's where the power is and, and that's where the majesty is. To see the grandness of it all and to see the gold and the silver and all the craftsmanship and to think that's what makes the temple the temple. Haggai's second message is to remind the people, hey, don't be discouraged. You're working hard. You're building this up. And yeah, it didn't look anything like Solomon's temple. But that's not where the power was. That's not where the glory was. That's not where the majesty of it all was. Where is it? 
It's with God. And so he reminds the people, don't you understand? God's the one who has all the gold. He has all the silver. He has all of the resources. He owns it all. It's all at his disposal. And so you're looking, you're saying, ah, oh, I wish it looked more like that. And God said, ah, that's not where the power is. That's not where it is. You keep building. You keep doing this. And let me tell you something. The glory of this latter temple, oh, it's going to be even better than Solomon's temple. And it was. I mean, the promise that Haggai made came true. Solomon's temple, it was built. And then a generation later, what happens? The, everything divides. You have the northern kingdom, southern kingdom. It divides. This temple, this temple would be a place of unity. It would be a place of peace. And so the, the, the former temple, no, it, it looked better. But this actually was better. The same thing's true for us that the glory of our latter temple is actually better than the former. You know, when you're a baby and you're born and you're in this temple, right? But it's really a temple unto yourself. We're all born in sin. But when you see a newborn baby, what do you do? You ooh and you ah over this newborn baby because they have skin that's just silky smooth. And you just want to touch the skin and to hear those first giggles and those first cries. Oh, it does something to your heart. It just kind of warms your heart. And you think, oh man, that's where life is. And so what happens? I mean, you got the skincare industry. We sell all kinds of products just trying to make your skin like it was when it was a baby. But there's something that happens that when you enter into this relationship with Jesus and that you now are not just a temple unto yourself, but you're a temple of God. Well, that's even better. Why? Because now you, you're, you're not just have a lens unto yourself. It's not just you don't perceive the world through your own eyes and how it affects you. No, you're an ambassador of peace and you think about things that are good and pleasing and perfect. And so you bring the peace and the presence of God into wherever it is you enter. The glory of the latter temple, even in our own lives, is better than the former. See, the lesson that the people of Haggai's day needed to learn and the lesson that we need to learn as well is our job is simply to be faithful and to leave the results to God. Our job is simply to be faithful to the work we're doing and we leave the results to God. We do all things with excellence. I mean, we do it as best we can. We do all things unto the Lord, the Bible tells us, but we leave the results to God. It's not about the trappings of the outside. It's about the, the power of God on the inside and what he's doing through it all. And so that's the first, that's the second message to a people who you think would be excited, but are actually discouraged because they're playing the comparison game. Haggai comes in, he says, no, no, you just be faithful. And it's the same thing today. We look at our works and sometimes it's easy to get discouraged. We're going out, we're trying to make disciples not happen the way we want. And God comes alongside and he reminds us, be faithful, leave the results to me. I will build my church. You don't have to carry that way. Your job is not to build the church, it's to make disciples. And when you're faithful with that task, God, he does the rest. And then, so this is the message. And then you get to the third message. And this third message of Haggai, well, the people would not see it coming. I mean, it would have just blindsided them. I want you to hear it. It's found in Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. The prophet writes, On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of 
Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with his people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer, there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before the stone was placed upon a stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you in all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. This message, it just seems kind of out of left field for the people. Because they've been faithful. They've, they've responded to the first message and they got to work making sure that the temple of God went up. They responded again to the second message. Haggai encourages them, you keep being faithful. You keep doing the work. Don't get discouraged playing the comparison game and just kind of throw in the towel. No, you keep doing the work. You build the temple. They respond. They keep at the work. And then comes this message and it's almost as if God is talking to them as if they're a pagan nation, telling them, oh, whatever you do, whatever you touch, it's all defiled. It means nothing. It's, it's worthless. Just look at everything that you're out there doing. You're going to harvest this, and you don't get what you think you're going to get. Why? Because I, I put that against you. I made that happen. I made sure that when you go out to, to draw in all your produce, that you're not collecting what you thought you would. I did that to you. I struck you with mildew, with hail, with all of this. And you're looking, and you're thinking, well, well, why? I mean, what is it? Why, why this message? These people are teachable. They're faithful. They're doing what's asked. Well, the reason is this. Sometimes when you get out there and you're just doing the work that you're called to do, you can think that it's the work that saves you. That the real important thing is to make sure, well, if I just do enough, then God will be pleased. <laughs> Haggai explained it to the people like this. He says, hey, you need to go to the priest and you need to get a ruling on these two things. If something that is holy that touches, touches something else, does that thing become holy? In other words, is holiness contagious? And then you also need a ruling on this. If something that is defiled, if something that is unclean touches something else, does that become unclean? Does that become defiled? In other words, is defilement contagious? And so for the first question, they go to the priest. And remember, this is, a, this is a culture that knows all about holiness because it's a big deal to God. Be holy as I am holy. I want you to be set apart for the work that I've called you to do. I want you to be different. You're going to look strange in this world because you're called to this. 
And God, he referred to a lot of things as holy. He, the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Keep it set apart for me. He, he talked about pieces of the offering, the sacrifice being holy. He talked about a portion of the temple being holy, even war as holy. But the main thing that he talked about as holy were people, his people, to be holy. And so there's this thought now, okay, is holiness contagious? Can, can I take something that is holy and touch something else? And then will that thing become holy? And the priests, they give the answer and everybody knows. I mean, they don't even need to go to the priest because this has been instilled in them. Well, no, you can't take something that's holy and then touch something else. And oh yeah, well now this thing's holy. No, it doesn't work like that. But then there's the other question. If you take something that is defiled, something that is unholy, unclean, and it touches something else, does that thing then become unclean? And the answer is yes. Oh, they, they knew that. They, they knew that, hey, if I go and I touch a dead body, a dead animal, anything, well, then I'm unclean. I, I have to go through a ceremonial washing. I have to do, go through a prescribed time apart. I have to offer certain sacrifices in order to be made clean again so that I can be fit again for the work that I'm called to do so that I can be fit again to enter into the community and worship. That, yeah, if you touch something unclean, that yes, you do become unclean, that uncleanness, defilement, it is contagious. And so then he turns it on the people and he says, don't you understand that you're out here and you're building this temple, but you're building it and you're all sinners. You're all defiled. And so everything that you're building is defiled because you're touching it. You cannot make it holy. You cannot build a building and that building be made holy. You, you can't touch a person, all of a sudden that person be made holy. You can't do that. And at the same time, since you are sinners and you are defiled, everything you do touch becomes unclean, becomes unholy. <laughs> you know, this gets to the story that... Uh, why Jesus and what he did was just so incredible, so amazing. Because back in the Old Testament, everybody knew that, hey, if you have a leper, what do you do with a leper? Well, you have to get them out of the camp. I mean, we just went through this whole deal with COVID and everything, right? I mean, we're still on the kind of the outskirts of it here. But uh, when you have someone who has COVID, you don't just say, hey, you know what? Why don't you just come and hang out, hang out with all of us healthy people? And by hanging out with all of us healthy people, well, then you'll be healthy. No, we don't do that. We, you, you have COVID. Hey, you need to stay at your house for 10 days or something, right? We, we, don't, we don't want you around the rest of society because then it's just going gonna, gonna to blow up. I mean, the virus just goes and goes and goes. So there's a period of exile that needs to take place. We know that it's the same thing today. And so in those days, yeah, you have leprosy. What do you do? Well, you got to get outside the camp. You're unclean. You're unfit now to be in the camp. Why? Because you'll defile the whole camp. And so for practical reasons, you got to be outside the camp. And then comes Jesus in Matthew chapter 8. And he's up on this mountainside and he's teaching just crowds of people. And then as he's on his way down the mountain, a man with leprosy approaches. 
And if you have leprosy and you're approaching someone, a group of people, you have to yell out, unclean, unclean. And so you can imagine as this man, he's, he's trying to come through the crowd. He's yelling, unclean, unclean. And hey, if you want to see a crowd just kind of make a, make a evaporate real fast, you just yell out unclean. And they're all going away because nobody wants to be unclean. Everybody knows, man, hey, if that guy touches me, I'm unclean. Now I got to live outside the camp. I can't be with family anymore. I can't be, I can't go to synagogue anymore. I, I can't be with community anymore. Now I'm on the, I'm outside the camp. Why? Because defilement is contagious. And so everybody would have backed up. They would have just run away. And then this man, he comes up to Jesus and, and everybody would just bated breath is watching this thing. And Jesus allows the man to kind of get close and to kneel before him. And then the man with leprosy cries out, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus, he begins to reach down toward the man. And any Israelite, they all would have been crying out, no, Jesus, stop, don't touch him. Don't touch him. If you touch him, you'll become defiled. You have to live outside a camp. You won't, you won't be fit for community anymore. If you touch him, you will become unclean. And what does Jesus do? He reaches down and he touches the man. And here's the incredible thing. Jesus did not become unclean. The man became clean. Jesus did not become unclean. The man became clean. <laughs> See, it's not about our work and what we do. It's about who, it's not about what we touch. It's about who touches us. It's not about the work of our hands. It's about who's doing the work through us, Jesus. Because what he touches, cleans. What he touches, man, he brings his glory into it. So our job is not just to get out here and say, okay, let me just work really hard. Because if I work really hard, if I build this temple, if I go out, if I make disciples, if I do all these things, if I go to church, if I'm doing all these things, then Jesus will be happy. Then he will be pleased. This will in some way justify me. Now, this is a reminder to the people. You building the temple, that doesn't justify you. That doesn't make you good in God's eyes or anything like that. no. You work hard in appreciation for the God who's touched your life. In appreciation for everything that you do, you give your bodies, you give your lives as living sacrifices. See, that's the call that Paul will say in Romans. In appreciation, your only reasonable act of worship is this, to offer your bodies, to give your lives as living sacrifices. So that's this third message. That's what it's about. Hey, it's not about don't get so caught up in what you're doing. Yes, you work hard, but only in appreciation, only as worship, not to earn anything. If you have to earn anything, if you add any bit of yourself to earning salvation or anything else, well, then you just discredit Jesus. There's no need if you can earn it yourself. And so this is that reminder to the people that, hey, what God does that's what matters. Your response to that is your reasonable act of worship. It's worship. And then comes the fourth and final message. Tagai 2, verses 20 through 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. 
speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and to overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one of them by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. There was another issue going on in the heart of the people, and that is, had the line been lost, everyone knew that, hey, Israel had to have a king, and there was this royal promise, the Messiah is coming through the royal line, and after everything that had happened, after their disobedience and their exile off into Babylon, there's just questions wondering, are we still God's chosen people? Does he still care about us? Is he still going to use us in this special way where the Messiah is going to come through Israel? Is, is, is that still part of the promise? And so they're wondering about this. And so this last message, it actually comes on the same day as the third message. And it's just to affirm, right? Because at the, at the one end, at the third message, it's this question of, hey, do you understand that it's really about what God touches, not what you touch? And now the fourth message is, hey, God still has his hand on you. He's still touching you. He's still, he's still going to work through you. So there's this promise here. And the promise, it's easy for us to miss in our context. But it all has to do with this signet ring. Now, a signet ring in those days was either worn on one of the fingers of your right hand or on a cord around your neck. And it was used to authenticate and to sign any kind of legal document, important document. You had special markings. And this authenticated that, yes, my word is good. Here, you can trust it's me. All these different things. And so God had kind of told the Israelite people that I'm going to use you and, and your, your leader through the royal line, your leader, well, that's my signet ring. This is my marking that, yes, I'm with you. But they would have known what God had said to Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin was an evil king and God said, hey, you are, you are like my signet ring, but I tear it off my finger. And so there's this fear, is God now done with us. Because after God says this to Jehoiachin, short, shortly after that, he's killed. His uncle would become king. He wouldn't last for very long. And then the Babylonian exile would take place. The Babylonians would conquer. And so there's this question hanging over everything. Is God done with us? I mean, we're building this temple. We're doing these things. But does God still really want to use us? And so here's the promise to Zerubbabel. You are my signet ring. Now, we don't really know what happened to Zerubbabel after this. He kind of just kind of drifts off into obscurity. We don't know if the Persians came and, and conquered him, if he died shortly after this while he's in office. We don't know what happened to him. But this wasn't just about Zerubbabel. This was the promise being restored because there's another aspect of this. Throughout this book, this short book, two chapters, you'll hear this phrase, Zerubbabel, son of Sheatil. And what does that tell every Judean, every Israelite, every Jew? It tells them this, 
It's the line of David. Shealtiel is from the line of David. Zerubbabel is from the line of David. This promise that God had made the people, it is restored. God has redeemed his people. He's recaptured them. He's still going to use them. The Messiah is going to come from this line. It wasn't so much about Zerubbabel as it was this lineage and this promise. And so when you get to Matthew and Luke 550 years later, both of them will say that Jesus comes from the line of Zerubbabel. That this promise that Haggai made to the people, that God made through Haggai to the people, <laughs> that God keeps it. That all of God's promises are yes and amen. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. Because you're looking at life and everything is twisting, it's going sideways, it feels upside down. And so all this doubt creeps in. Can God use me to make disciples? Does God really care about this situation? Does, does he hear? Does he know? Is he present? And then you go back and you read the promises of God. And he says, I've chosen you. I've called you to be a royal priesthood. Yeah, I care. You present all your requests to me. And the peace of God, my peace, oh, it's going to transform your mind. I'm going to give it to you. All these promises that God makes, you need to remind yourself perhaps this morning that God's promises are yes and amen. And just trust that. Trust that God's promises are yes and amen. That, that's how Haggai finishes the book. That you're working hard. It's not so much about your work. It's just about who's touching your work and who's working through you. And everything that God says he's going to do, yeah, you can still count on it. His promises are yes and amen. You haven't voided that. God is still going to use you. He still has his hand on you. As we look at these four messages of Haggai, we see this first message that the temple must go up, that the presence of God must be displayed. And so for in our day, it means that the temple must go out because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're the temple of God. So the temple must go out so that people know and understand the peace and the presence of God. And then there's that second message that even when you get discouraged and things aren't going exactly the way you hoped they would or the way you dreamed they would or the way you thought they would, that you keep working, that your job is to be faithful. You just leave the results to God. You just be faithful. But as you get caught up in being faithful, it's easy to think that my faithfulness, my work, everything that I'm doing, well, this is what's earning me favor with God. That, that this is what's making God happy. But it's not so much that. It's our work is just an appreciation for what God has already done in us. So in appreciation, we give ourselves, our lives, as living sacrifices. And then as, as we're working and we're saying, well, God, I'm, I'm not seeing the results that I thought I'd see. Or have I voided this because my work wasn't good here and I sinned here and I messed up here? I can, can you still use me? Am I still worthy to be used? God's promises are yes and amen. What he says about you, he means. It matters. It's what matters most. Not so much what we say about ourselves, but what God says about us. His promises are yes and amen. So this week, well, it's time for the temple to go out. Have a great week. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us purpose, that you give us reason for being. And God, in appreciation for all that you've done for us, God, we offer our bodies, our lives as living sacrifices to the work that you've called us to. And God, even when we get discouraged, would you remind us, 
would we trust that your promises are indeed yes and amen. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.